Hi, I'm John Chambers, partner in Corporate Innovation at IE and host of The Corporate Innovator, a podcast that gives you direct access to visionary corporate leaders, makers and advisors to level up your innovation game. The Corporate Innovator is produced by IE, Australia's largest independent innovation company. We work with corporate partners to develop, design and deliver transformative ideas to market. Learn more at ie.com.au. Leslie is the local pioneer in the burgeoning field of prototyping, which was first experimented with by Google in the early 2000s and mastered by Alberto Savoia, Leslie's mentor. In this episode, we'll explore the prototyping evolution over the years, how it's challenged traditional methods as a faster, cheaper and more reliable alternative as data becomes more readily available. Like all strategies, however, it presents both new opportunities and new risks. Prototyping's methods are vast. Leslie knows them all, and he invented some himself, so who better to talk to? Over to the king of prototyping himself. So today on The Corporate Innovator, we get to welcome Leslie Barry, a good friend, a wonderful international innovator, and a great partner of IE. I wanted to start by acknowledging that we're recording this podcast on Wurundjeri land uh, and just acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging of that, um, that great nation and just acknowledge their, their incredible resilience and, and entrepreneurship over the last 60,000 years. It's great to be here with Leslie. Leslie and I met uh, a few years ago through an introduction of a, a mutual friend and I think Hamish when introducing us said, I think you guys are same spirit animals or something along those lines, which I was like, oh, that's an interesting intro. But I think in the years since we've, I think that's been tr- played out to be true. I've come to love this guy. He does amazing work and, and, and world leading work in the, in the field of prototyping that he's done. So it's great to be here with you today, Leslie. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So we're going to get into your career and a whole bunch of other stuff and then but really zero in on this, this emerging discipline called prototyping that you're um, the, the predominant expert in. Let's talk a little bit about how you got here. We've been building this, this profile, but before that you had this incredible career in corporate and consulting. Talk a little bit about that and why it led you to your current focus. Sure, thank you. I've done a bunch of things. So I've built a few startups in my time. I've failed spectacularly at a lot of them. I've managed to exit one or two of them. Um, I've done a lot of work in professional services and managing teams and that kind of thing. And I've also done a lot of work around the early stage innovation system, specifically in Australia, over the last eight years. Mm. So that was a mix of startup and enterprise. Through that, I worked with Sportsbed for a few years, with ThoughtWorks Consulting for a few years. And what led me to where I am now is a common thread that was really frustrating me. So I'm, I'm, I'm more of a sort of how do we do this than what should we do person. So I was doing a lot of talking around what we should do, but I was frustrated about execution capability. And this led me to prototyping. And prototyping is not a mispronunciation, mm-hmm. it's another buzzword, so sorry. <laughs> but it's really about trying to answer the question, how do we validate and test with customers to get data versus opinion whether an idea is going to work? And out of all the possible ideas, which ideas should we put effort, time and resources into? And the reason that this resonated with me was, in my humble opinion, there's a lot of waste around and churn around having ideas and hack days and all these wonderful things which have their place, but then very quickly leaping into how do we build this thing and spending lots of time and money and resources executing on something before we've stopped and taken a breath to see should we bother to do this in the first place. As you know, at IE we think about innovation systematically. We love to help clients build muscles around idea generation, validation of those ideas at the highest possible quality before moving into incubating and scaling those ideas. And that's what we've come to love about working with you, Leslie, is that 
this is a capability that you build. This is a muscle that you build in an organization to be able to validate at the highest possible customer centricity, a series of ideas before you go and invest in them. And so I think it's just awesome. So let's talk about it. What, what is prototyping? Prototyping was a method developed and created at Google. And the reason they created this method was they were trying to answer the question, how do we get customer data versus opinion? Because the current market research methods, traditional methods, give you an opinion. You go and ask someone if they like the blue one, and they say, yes, they like the blue one. And mostly they, they're lying. So they're not being deceptive, and they're not being cruel about it, but there's, there's a framing around that question. So given that we're in the digital age, like how do you construct experiments that give you data? And Google, of course, is a master at this. A bit of quick history is it was created by a team led by um, Alberto Savoia from Google. And Alberto's an interesting guy. So in 2001, he was one of the first directors of engineering on the AdWords product. And in 2007, he was called back to Google to help figure out this problem. Now, what happened in 2007 was we had the iPhone arrived and just everything exploded. So they went, okay, how, what's the fastest possible way to get data versus opinion? So they set up a team, they developed this method, and Alberta has gone on to teach us at Stanford. And why it's different to lean startup and all these other kinds of methods and just popping up a Facebook ad is when people think about innovation, they think about the cool kids in the corner playing with VR headsets and riding scooters. But it's actually the opposite. The big companies that are doing this well apply massive discipline and rigor to the experimentation process. And this method supports that. So in its essence, it's trying to figure out what is the hypothesis we're trying to prove as a customer? And then the key to the whole thing is before we even start doing anything, we figure out what good looks like. So we say X percent of Y customer will do Z thing. And that's where all the work goes. And by front loading that, what happens is we don't get into the situation where we're chasing vanity metrics around experimentation, where we go 10,000 people like the thing, therefore it's good. Like why? Maybe it should be 10, maybe it should be a million. So by figuring out up front what that looks like and then creating structured experiments to answer the next question, which is how can we test this tomorrow and get validation for zero dollars? Which you can't do, of course, but it puts your mind into the frame set of what's the fastest possible way to make contact with the customer, fail, learn, and stop guessing and do the next thing. So that's in a nutshell what prototyping does. So the, the difference between what prototyping and say growth hacking, which everybody talks about and everyone's got a kid who can do growth hacking, is growth hacking is about just get a number, get as many of something happening, whether it's views, converts, etc., with no context or experimentation necessary yeah. mindset around it. Prototyping uses maybe some of the same techniques, but with a very focused set of customer-centric data gathering. Yes, so to put that in context, like what prototyping is trying to answer and why it works so well in the enterprise. So we've run about 900 prototypes over the last two years with about 30 corporate customers, and it works. And why it works is we're trying to answer the question in an abundance of ideas, because there's an abundance of ideas. Ideas on the problem. Which ideas should we invest in? And where should we put the focus? Without guessing, without taking the strongest opinion and all that kind of stuff that happens in organizations. And we're trying to go, out of all the possible ideas, which four or five are the ones that are the highest value? Now, how do you do that? Growth hacking technique would go, exactly what you said, just scale the hell out of it and, and measure what's happening. But what this does is takes a step back and goes, if we run experiments and the experiments pass the customer validation test, then those ideas obviously rise to the top of the pile. Maybe we should start there. And then you can apply some of these other techniques. So I'm not saying, and we get this a lot, this is not saying current market research is bad and human-centered design is bad and design thinking is bad and lean startup is bad. Everything has its place. But my belief of why this is different is this answers the question very simply, 
how do you validate whether this is good or bad? And this is the best technique that I found to do this. I love it because that idea, in the process of idea generation, ultimately what you go and build as a company, the quality of the validated idea is so fundamental because from that point, millions are thrown at it, right? And if you can do anything in the early stages to improve that, it's a great investment. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the techniques. Whereas a lot of people think about, you know, this idea of a fake Facebook ad as the, as the answer to your sneaky validation, you use up to 10 techniques, different methods, fit for purpose. How do you go on the process of taking the idea, finding the right technique, running the right experiments? Talk a little bit about that, maybe some examples. Sure. So what we'll do is we've combined the Lean Canvas as a screening tool because it's really important. What happens as soon as you have an innovation technique, everyone just rams every possible idea into there. So you have to filter ideas out early. So what you're trying to do is get customer-facing ideas. The others are valid, but not in this process. That helps us get really clear on what you're trying to do. Then we define the hypothesis, the XYZ, and the hypo-zoom, which is the prototyping terms. And based on answering the following question is, what is the quickest way to get data? we then choose a technique. So why the technique? So there's 10 different techniques. There's fake door, mechanical, Turk, and a whole bunch of these. And the YouTube prototype and infiltrators and all these kinds of things. And the reason we've defined them, you'll know these as, as other names like Wizard of Oz, etc. So there's nothing new about it. But what Alberta and the team did well is they bundled them together to go, this is a way to go and run experiments. Because part of what we do is we say, go forth and innovate mm. and go forth and run experiments. But we don't teach people how. It's this weird space where there's rigor in all other parts of the organization, but with innovation, we tend to not apply the same rigor to it. So we go, instead of going like, go forth and experiment, which then just becomes a survey monkey or a survey that goes out, which just gives you opinion, not data. Uh, we say, yeah, choose from this list. So the way we decide is we go, what's the fastest possible way to get something out? How much risk are we prepared to take? Because there is some risk in taking experiments and running those, and you have to be obviously conscious of that, that you're not crossing the line there. And then we go, how can we get the first piece of data? Now, probably worth talking about data for a second. <laughs> so data is not Facebook likes, and data is not YouTube views. Data is an action from a customer. So in prototyping language, that's called skin in the game, which is an email address, or just something a customer has to do that's given you something more than they would by just doing a drive-by, for example. And then we slowly escalate the complexity of those experiments over time. So fake door, an example, it's an extreme example and startups use this, most enterprises probably would have to consider the safe way to do this, would go, we will put up a web page offering our product, which doesn't necessarily exist yet, but we're just testing the appetite for it. Clearly we structure that in a way that doesn't break any laws and do silly things. And then we set up a web page, we ask for, in a most extreme example, the buy now button, click buy now. And we don't go straight there, but you can. And then we get results from that. And why do we do that? Because we learn so much from that process. What are we doing? What are we trying to learn? How do we do it? Which customers are there? What are the demographics? A whole bunch of things. Then we take that and we feed that into the next experiment. The next experiment would escalate a little bit more and maybe in that case we want to go and set up the imposter method which is we simulate the product or service that we have using a similar product or service and we can do that within our own capability so there's various ways it's, it's hard to answer the question generically but there's various ways to use these techniques and we decided based on the outcome of the experiment the hardest part of this is getting people to not design more than one experiment initially because what we do is we design one experiment and we go, okay, if this works, we'll do two, then three, then four. And two and three and four are a complete waste of your time and resources because you're assuming one's gonna pass. So what we do is we slow down, we go, build the simplest version, learn, build the simplest version, learn, etc. And how do you get the hierarchy right in that, that experiment 
making that sure that the first experiment that you run against an idea or concept is the most important one. Like that's the riskiest assumption or how do you get to that? That's why we create a thing called the initial, the key market hypothesis in prototyping. So once you've been through the canvas, which is just an exercise to get us from ideas on a wall to an agreed view of what the world looks like, yeah. or what the problem looks like, we're trying to go, what are the potential solutions and define what is the core customer behavior that we're trying to isolate to prove that this idea in isolation works or does not work. And often what happens there is we end up with a bunch of high-level metrics and things which can obfuscate the results. So we try and do a lot of work around figuring out what is the core essence of this idea that we're solving for this customer. Nice. So can you talk about any examples, work that you've done, things that you can share just to really bring it to life? So when clients are not successful, it's when they treat this as a training exercise. So here's a new shiny new method, it's a new name, we need some of that. Let's get the innovation team together in a room and train them and ta-da, as if by magic this will just happen. And like every single change program in any organization, it doesn't just happen by magic. And that often happens when we don't have leadership and board support for executing this and where there's not an underlying urgency in the business to actually discover something new and genuinely solve customer problems. Where it works really well, and we've got customers that have run north of 200 or 300 prototypes internally after working with us, is where they've gone, they've, they've stepped back and they've gone, right, what does our governance look like around innovation? How do we measure this in a pragmatic way? How do we make sure that our expectations are correct? Often what we get is, I always joke that the average lifespan of innovation leaders 18 months because that's how long you've got to get away with things and not deliver results. And given you're doing innovation, it's like 80% is going to fail anyway. There's not enough patience in the organization. So if patient leadership, we understand that it's risky, we understand that there's a lot of failure involved here and failure equals learning and genuinely mean that, not just say the words. Then we go to the next level, which is what I do, which you come and go like, great. So how do we actually execute this? And often I'll get... What does the whole process look like? And my answer is, it doesn't matter. Let's just start and let's just do one. And organically discover what that process needs to be in your particular organization and take out the blockers and enablers and, and get that all sorted out. So where that happens, that's great. And then what we do is we train the team up on prototyping. It gets owned by someone. Often, although we'd like to think everyone's an innovator, Often there's a ferocious champion inside who's really driving this hard for 12 or 18 months and then it gets embedded in the organization and what happens is we create an environment where there's permission to fail. There's permission to... F why? Because it's small, structured, cheap failure with very little impact and that's where it works well. We have had some really decent successes given we work on the principle 99 out of 100 things are going to fail, mm -hmm. which is true. We all know the stats. Somewhere between 80 and 99 is going to fail. We've had one or two outstanding results that have generated millions and millions of dollars of upside for customers, as well as my other favorite, which is we try and figure out how much money we're saving by not doing things. So we've had customers coming to us in financial services, for example, where on the third day, the general manager walked in and said, you've saved us $4 million. We were about to go and build that thing, and you've proved with data that we don't want to build that thing. That was my first introduction to a form of this Many years ago at Telstra was when we were working on some connected car prototypes and uh, we used a, a very lean version of this but it actually saved us making some really bad decisions because putting real working examples of outcomes in front of a, a client and they just didn't want it, didn't want it, and we couldn't believe it because we were so passionate about this, we'd become so attached to this baby. But two sprints proved to us that they didn't want it and we saved millions. And look back with incredible gratitude of the not just the money but the organisational energy, the 
resourcing, everything that you put behind an idea to scale it, you know, it either creates a movement of momentum of energy in the organization when it's successful, but when it's not, it sucks the life out of the organization. So this is such a fundamental capability to be able to generate either momentum or reduce like the life force being sucked out of the organization. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I took some clients across to visit Alberto January last year and we were sitting chatting to him and like he always brings this up, which is the benefit of prototyping is you saving people's lives. And it sounds mm. dramatic, mm. but when early stage companies, startups, scale ups, we do a lot of work with them too, but and organizations where it's less visible, when they tackle a project, you're committing resources and lives and energy and brains and money and everything and assets to this particular idea based on very little upfront validation for years. And you're wasting people's lives and time, effectively. Yeah. So I absolutely agree with you. It's a great way of putting it. So can you think of one or can you talk about your favorite, we always talk about this podcast about the favorite kill, something that yes. you've done that you might've been hard, might've been hard for you, might've been hard for the client, but you using this technique, you're able to put something to bed that really did save an incredible amount of pain. Can you yes. share one? There is one I can share because the customer shared it publicly. Right. So RACQ, who's been a really good customer, the CIO, Greg Booker, was quoted in the financial review early last year around prototyping, saying that they were testing a mobility as a service product and everyone loved this thing and they spent time and resources and clever people working on this and they tested it and nobody came. And we tested that, if I recall correctly, and I may stand to be corrected, ran eight or 10 experiments on this, we could almost give them free money and they wouldn't use this thing. And it was completely counterintuitive to what you would imagine in a room with smart people. So that was a, a really interesting one publicly quoted. My most painful one was, on a personal note, I wanted to build a health and fitness tracking app on, on the Pebble Watch, and we did a bunch of effort around this thing, and ran prototypes on it and absolutely failed completely. So that was painful, and I've used this like everybody, when you come up with a wonderful idea, you want to run off and do it. And I suffer from that too. And I catch myself so many times going, stop, prototype it, and go on and move. So that's the two favorite kills. And then the other answer to that is every kill is my favorite. Because every <laughs> time we stop something, we are genuinely not wasting people's time doing something silly. And we're focusing on big, proper, meaty problems. Yeah. There's lots of nonsense ideas where we're just spinning our wheels and it sounds like fun and this is a fun thing to do, but why? Yeah, it's funny. I think I talk, so many innovation executives I talk to, one of the big things they would say about their organization is we're not good at stopping stuff. We're, we're really terrible the at stopping. The zombies are there. Mm. So that's why this is a capability that is so fundamentally important, so powerful. It's deeply exciting. Another thing that really excites me about this is this is part of what I would see as the wave of change that's coming to product management globally. So 10, even you know, 20 years ago, the, the bet, world's best product companies were held up as ones that had incredible commitment to market-led analysis, category management, incredible R&D and research, building up insights that would then go and create a product and then great product manager would go and build the P&L and scale and, and run this out mm. with different types of research and, and not this kind of validation. We're in a transition now to a world where, particularly through digital, product management is changing in a number of ways. And we're fascinated by that change here at IE and how we help clients navigate it. This is a big part of that for me. This is a big part of what the change in what research looks like. And interestingly, I think you're working with one of those of the world's largest product companies, renowned product companies who are 
investigating this as well. Can you share anything about what you've learned in those conversations? Yes, I can. So I did some work with Procter & Gamble during last year, and this was in Singapore and the US. And the reason they engaged me was to um, speak to the leadership teams, three or four of the leadership teams, around this new method. And this was obviously led by an engagement they had with Alberto initially, because they're exploring the same thing. So although they're selling physical products, what they're realizing and what everybody's realizing is the world is digital and there's this crossover. So how can we use digital methods to validate physical products and vice versa? So we had a lot of conversations around this. And one of the comments, and I'm sure it was a throwaway comment, but one of the comments from one of the leaders was, you know, we should really think about redirecting some of our market research budget to executing these methods because you nailed it like we are in 2020 everything is online everything is digital everything is data and that's what's driving the shift so we should use methods that we can derive data from to make decisions on so it's been a really interesting conversation and i was surprised at the level of interest that came from an organization of that scale to go hang on a second we're curious and they're doing some fascinating work but we're curious about what are the different methods to do this? So it's early stage in that conversation and it was a, yeah, it's yeah. fun. It's great to be talking to guys like that because that's a hallmark of the shift that's happening globally that we're right in the middle of. It's super exciting. On that, let's talk, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the bigger picture stories here, which we often get our guests to comment on. Only last week, I think the global rankings of innovation were out again. Australia, I think, fell again, another place. So this anxiety, this passion that I think we all share as corporate innovators, that we would find better ways, better pathways, better support, better air cover, better governance, all the things needed we know are needed to really generate systemic innovation and outcomes for this nation. We're still not nailing it. It's our passion here at IE, I know it's your passion as well. Would love your comments. What's your observation of the innovation landscape in Australia? What have your experiences been? What solutions do you see to helping to generate better return, better outcomes? I think there's two things. I think there's a lot of short-term thinking around. So I alluded earlier to the sort of 18-month lifespan of an innovation leader. And that comes from the fact that our leaders are incentivized on short-term profits as opposed to long-term sustainability. And there's obvious reasons why you do that because you've worked your whole career to get to that point and it's probably the right thing to do. However, I believe that strong leaders' role is to create an environment of long-term sustainability, and this applies to government too. So our, our government's role is not to throw short-term profits. Our government's role is to build infrastructure for the next generation and for all the generations. So that's their role, and they get confused. And I see in the enterprise what happens, not all of them, but in the enterprise what we see is the leadership team is focused on, yeah, now short-term profitability, and it's as simple as everything else in the world. You get what you measure. So if you're doing short-term incentivization of KPIs on profitability and zero incentivization on innovation, what are you going to get? You're getting no innovation. And I think this is across the board. So my first question when I go and work with companies is, what are the KPIs of the executive team around innovation? And sadly, generally the answer is none. Okay, We talk about it a lot, but there's no incentivization. So what happens? No innovation. Or it becomes the thing that we do in the corner. I think the other thing that's happening, I've observed, is it doesn't feel like there's enough fear and panic around <laughs> uh, around change. Like yeah. the change is happening, but in Australia, we're quite generally isolated. Like the GFC didn't really affect us. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that, that didn't affect us hard. So there's not enough pain. Whereas if you work in the US, like 
everyone is, the competition is intense and everyone's worrying about the next thing and chasing really hard to do that. And I'm not saying one's better than the other, but those are my observations. There's no urgency. And without the urgency, it's not gonna just happen on its own. There's urgency around the short-term things. Clearly, you have to run the business and not break the business. But we have to have a parallel system of what is that short, fast track? Like, how does an innovation project at its basic level, how does it get onto your roadmap to build things? Most of the time it doesn't, because it can never compete with the known. So we've got the unknown unknowns competing with the known knowns. You can't compete. Got it. I love this conversation. Let's talk a bit more about the KPIs that an organization could have to drive innovation. Maybe if we start at the board level and, and thinking about the board's mindset of governance, culture, risk, strategy, what would be the two or three things a board should be tracking of their management or executive team to give them confidence that the right levels of innovation are, are happening, do you think, in the company? I think there's a difficult conversation around return on innovation investment. So what does that look like and how do you define that? And I'd love the answer because I've read all the McKinsey stuff and everybody, and there's a lot of words, but it's a very difficult thing to track because the nature of the beast is that 99% of things fail. So how I answer the question is, we've created a method to bring it down to the basics again, or an approach called innovation velocity. So what does that mean? That means the number of ideas that are actually getting executed and tested inside the organization just to get them started. And I'm dropping into the weeds, I understand yeah. that. But if you raise it up to the board level, what you're gonna do is you, you want to create a leading indicator that measures activity in the space, participation. And participation can be measured in dollars and resources and time and investment and all those things. And then give it enough of a lead time to create or to measure some sort of financial outcome. So have we taken it from validation to incubation? How many products are going from incubation to scale? Have we got the capability to scale these things out? What does this look like? How are we funding them? So there's those kinds of metrics that need to happen, but they need to be, and I'm answering generically, but they need to be deliberate. We have to decide what does this look like? And they need to be, I'm a big fan of one metric that matters. So what is the one single thing you can measure at the board level? that proves that you're participating in this environment, whatever your innovation strategy is. Interesting. What I like about it as well is, obviously one that many people measure is investment in R&D or innovation mm. as a mix of the overall capital of the company. I think CSL came out in the last couple of weeks noting that they're 11% or more of not profit but revenue. Sales revenue is reinvested in R&D, extraordinarily high number, but look at their share price, they're a juggernaut, and I think Atlassian will probably be in the same boat. So when you can invest safely, it's really important to track R&D spend, but I guess what most boards will be wrestling with is have we got the capability in-house to spend that money wisely? So I'm nervous to make the commitment if I don't know it's gonna be spent wisely. What you're talking about with the prototyping metrics says that if we are tracking the velocity of validated ideas, we know that we're building a muscle that's gonna put a quality measure in place early to ensure that investment, we've got a better chance of a more committed investment making a return. Yeah, and it's a chicken and egg situation, is, because yeah. you'll go, we don't have the capability, therefore should we invest? Like, how are you gonna get the capability if you're not investing the capability? It's not so, another way to answer that is, like everything in the organization, it requires rigor, and resources and capability and time and structure around it and measurement. And we tend to ignore that. Let's expand on that just a little bit more, which is if you think about metrics, how else or what have you experienced or how do you think about governance and governance of innovation within large companies? Again, what should the board be focused on at a governing level? What should the executive be focused on at a governing level to ensure that they're fostering an environment and a culture where innovation can occur without 
getting their hands too involved with it, they, they become the hippos, the highest paid person driving it. How do, how do you get that right? Any thoughts on that would be really fascinating. <laughs> That's a very difficult question to answer because I tend to think of prototyping as a Trojan horse to get change to happen in the organization. So it's actually a change management program because we are used to, we've, we've spent 100 years industrializing our processes. So every organization is are perfect execution machines and cost optimization machines. And then you throw this other thing in, which is the opposite which is to go, there's no perfection here. We're going to take some risk here. We need to take that risk in a structured way. So I would measure at the board level, how are we measuring that we're taking risk in a structured way and what, is the, what are the checks and balances within that? But we will take risk. Yeah. The other thing I challenge leadership teams too is get your innovation failure rate up, okay? Because what you go into places and you'll see there's 20 ideas and 19 of them are great. Like, you're not failing hard enough, so you're not going to learn anything, so you're doing really safe things. It often comes up about risk, this idea of uh, we're doing some sneaky stuff here. It's a bit sneaky. It's a bit risky. Should we be doing this, especially if we're a big brand? How do you help your clients navigate that conversation about it? Is, is this too risky? It's a very good question. So, yes, there is some risk involved in inverted commas, so not enterprise risk, but inverted commas risk. And you have two choices. You can learn nothing and stay with the status quo, or you can try new things and take a little bit of risk to learn. And by risk, what we mean is getting a value proposition in front of 100 customers in a structured way, and there's a whole scale of ways to test that. So if the company's completely risk-averse, once again, just to reinforce, we're very careful of, of complying with ACCC and financial services laws and all these things, of course, and we don't test things in that, in that environment that takes that kind of risk. But what we can do is you'll have a lot more at your disposal than you think as an organization. So often we'll go to legal and risk teams and the answer is no. Their position is no, we're all going to die. Like, <laughs> no, you're not. Okay, so let's just run one. So what we do is we think about it on the continuum of if we get this in front of 100 people in a structured way to get us data, what's the fastest way to do that? And how can we do this in a way where we can actually fulfill the promise of the experiment in a manual way. That's often the way we get around that. So you have access to partnerships, you have access to networks, you have access to EDM systems and a way to get mailers out and text. And there's all sorts of techniques we can use to do this. So what we try and do is go, here's the potential offer, test if the customer wants the offer, and then find a way to manually fulfill that offer if we need to. Sometimes what we do is not fulfill the offer, but we've all had this experience where Thank you, we're not ready yet, we'll add you to VIP list or Yazavat or we do that kind of thing. But it's a very serious conversation because I discuss this again with Alberto often, this often comes up, which is that we don't live in a completely binary situation where we have no risk or all the risk. So really what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out along that scale, what is the risk of spending a year and a half million dollars to do this by guessing versus the risk of running an experiment on 100 customers. And that's the trade-off that you're making all the time. Mm. So everything's a trade-off. So that's how we handle that conversation. But once again, like all these things, it's on a case-by-case -case basis, finding the best solution. Absolutely. And I guess that risk extends to not just spending a year and half a million, but actually launching products into market that people then go and spend money on, people commit to, that they may be exited because they're not functional. And I think of, of many that I can think of where customers have spent a lot of money and they haven't worked two or three years later, they're exited. So there's a massive loss of brand value 
value and also frustration to customers that could have been saved with a, a modicum of risk up front in a different way. So that's a really good way of framing it. Yeah. So the last question on prototyping, I'm an innovation executive, I'm a product executive, a strategy executive. I'm pretty sure I don't have a great validation muscle or capability in my company I, that we're not doing enough to apply high quality validation to ideas as they're coming through. How do I get started? Where's the, where's the logical place or the first engagement that we could work with you to start to build this in and test this and then start to build it out as a capability? How do you, how do you usually start? It starts the conversation to understand what the current validation process or method is and often it's market research which we don't believe is the right way to validate and to frame that we talk about the experimentation platform so do you have an experimentation platform and what that means is you're doing three things you're going we've identified some problems and the company would use human centered design for that we have explored a bunch of possible solutions and companies typically use design thinking for that approach and then the next step is validation with customers. And that's where prototyping fits. So prototyping isn't displacing anything, it's going, how do we do these things faster and cheaper? How do we validate faster and cheaper? So the way we engage with customers is generally we'll spend a day running a prototyping workshop for 20 or 30 people. And in that we've got the innovators and then the blockers who become the enablers. And I mean that tongue in cheek, but legal risk, social brand, all those kinds of people to teach them the method. And at the end of the day, they go, aha, this is so obvious. Why aren't we doing this all the time? And then we follow that up with a two week experimentation sprint. And what that means is we learn by doing. It's like all things you have to do this and embed it. So we'll work with teams over those two weeks. And generally by the third day, we'll have some experiments up and running already. One of our customers, we tested 10 innovation ideas, ran 38 experiments over two weeks, and we came back with some recommendations around to validate or invalidate. And then after that, we obviously support them with a tool set that we leave behind to manage this experiment velocity, and we can drop in and help them figure out how do you create the change process to support this over time? Because the magic is in doing this over a year or two not just running these two or three week interventions. Is there anything else you'd love to say? Anything else we didn't get to that you think is critical to the story of prototyping? I think we've pretty much covered it. I think the core thing is, you asked me at the beginning of this conversation, like, why am I doing this? Like, out of all the possible things we could be doing with the experiences that we have, I asked Alberto the same question because he's a very experienced, capable guy, ex-Googler and all the rest of it. And he said, because out of all my experience, like, this is the key that unlocks the potential of the organization. So it does two things really, really, really well and really quickly. Stops doing dumb things and helps you focus on the correct thing to do. So yeah, I think that's what I'd like to leave it. It's just validate. Don't guess, data wins over opinion every time. So I guess the answer is, if you're a company that wants to learn how to validate, like Google, prototyping is the key. That's it for this episode of The Corporate Innovator. As always, thanks for listening. And if you're loving the episodes, be sure to tell your friends or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions or guest ideas for the show, you can email me at hi at ie.com.au. See you next time.